Right. Good morning. How you doing? Want to again be one to uh, echo our happy Mother's Day to moms in the room today. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, we're just excited to have you. We are kicking off a brand new series today called One Plus One Equals One. And um, I guess that's what we have. One plus, well, we, we equal three. <laughs> but, um, but I wanted to have uh, Walter and Gail come up and share a little bit with you today. We're starting a new series on marriage. And you'll notice usually we'll have like a bumper video come up after the last song before the, the message, but we're going to switch that up during this series and actually throughout the series get to interview some couples. So you guys, thank you for being here today. Um, I think we have a picture. This might be um, a, from a couple years ago anyways, so uh, really great. I love it. Uh, I'd hate to have to get into that tuxedo today. <laughs> so uh, do this. Give us an overview. Tell us a little bit about your family, how long you've been married, kind of set that stage for us. Uh, by the way, uh, just before that picture was taken, my new father-in-law came up to me and, and said, I thought you were going to get a haircut. So, <laughs> I, I'd just gotten about eight inches cut off. So. <laughs> we got off to a good start. Um, well, we have three children. Uh, uh, let's see. Sonny is married to a strong and mighty Brian, and they live in Amarillo, Texas with six kids. Just adopted number six last week. Tommy and steadfast, oh, wonderful joy, uh, live up in San Luis Obispo with their four kids. And then Stephanie and Brolin, the most compassionate, kindest son-in-law, sweet man, uh, live in Spokane, Washington. So we have 10 grandkids. Isn't that great? Wow. God is blessed. <laughs> and we've been married for 46 years coming up in August. <laughs> to each other, actually. <laughs> yeah, to. <laughs> and, and 43 of those have been awesome. Okay. So... Yeah, I get along much better with my current wife than I did my first <laughs> Those first 10 years. Were <laughs> well, let's ask this. One of the things throughout this series, we're going to focus on this idea of God's design of oneness in marriage. So help us make that a little bit practical today. What does oneness look like in the Lynn's marriage? Well, we, we're honored, of course, to even be representing uh, Jesus Christ in the area of marriage. And he's absolutely the glue that has kept us together, and like many other couples, there's just no way that we could have made it outside of his love and his intervention and his miraculous answers to prayer. We decided early on that uh, we wanted to be what we call a transitional couple. We had some things that had kind of been handed down to us from previous generations and our, our families in which we grew that we just decided that, you know, we would like for those things to be left behind, and we wanted to pay the price that they stopped with us. And uh, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing, of course, to actually do it. So we, we had some really rough challenges to, to try to figure out how to, to pay that price, and that, that threw us into a place where uh, we had to just really uh, spend a lot of time in prayer. And we learned to pray with each other first, and then we learn to pray for each other, which is just so important. I, I love it knowing that my wife is praying for me. And I love to pray for her. And we do that uh, sometimes, many times throughout the day. We, we try to start off every morning just uh, being thankful <laughs> for all the things and all the blessings that God has given us. And we, we also learn during that time to keep uh, short accounts. 
Uh, we, we, we try to make sure that we don't have an argument today about something that happened 10 years ago or even two weeks ago. Of course, it, it helps when you get to a stage where you've, you're losing your memory anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and, and so, uh, but, uh, you want to say something about short accounts? Or? Okay, that was good. Uh, in front of all these witnesses, too. So, uh, that's great. And we, we learn to let each other off of the hook, we call it. We're not holding each other responsible for each other's happiness. That's the Lord's business, and he works down in, into, into our lives through each one of us. Which, and that's really the picture of oneness. I think another thing is we, we decided to stay out of criminal court, we call it, <laughs> uh, so that we can, uh, we're so different, we're, like many couples, we're just completely opposite. And <laughs> so we, we find uh, no end to things that we can disagree about, but as a result, no end to things that we could uh, pray for as well. What that, what that means? <laughs> what that means? I was subtle. I was good. He said, don't give Gail the mic. Don't give Gail the mic. What that means is that we, we don't, we've learned not to judge each other's intentions. You know, when you get in an argument, and you can say, oh, he, he was, he's trying to get to me, he's trying to, that's not his intention, I learned. His not intention is, is not malice, it's that he sees it differently than I see it. And I've given up the right to be right. <laughs> Those 10 years, I had to be right. I don't have to be right so much anymore. And although she usually is, though. So. <laughs> well said, well said. Well, you guys, I just want to thank you so much for coming. Can we thank Walter and Gail this morning? Now, one of the things that was really great, um, if, if this is all that we were going to get to hear from Walter and Gail, you would rightly so say, Todd, that they need a lot more time up front because we have a lot to learn there. But the great news is we actually, Bill was really wise and put together a time where we could record a conversation with Walter and Gail last Friday or just a couple days ago. So what I want to say is this, is that if you go to our webpage and you go to um, uh, series information on this series, one plus one equals one, you click that and you'll see that there's not only the link for this week's message and uh, the whole service and notes, but you'll see interview right there with Walter and Gail. Click on that. We had a 45 minute conversation on Friday, so rich which is all these great things about lessons that they have learned and how they've seen God be faithful to them. So I really want to encourage you sometime in the week this week, make time to do that. Listen to more of Walter and Gail's story. You will be encouraged. They have a lot to share. And it was just a great time getting to be with them. Well, we're glad you're here with us today. Beginning of a brand new series on marriage. And uh, we're going to dive in today. If you have a Bible today, you can open it to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin there. Genesis chapter 2. In your Trinity this week, I didn't bring them up with me, but you've got some message notes if you want to get those out. Have those ready to go. Fill in some blanks. There'll be some things today I would really want you to take home as far as some things to look back on and remember related to marriage. So our notes are, um, they're not superfluous. They've got some important information. As you're doing that, let me tell you about a couple of things that are going on. One thing we'd love to do in, this, in any series is have something to kind of complement the series and connect some dots. We are very excited at the, uh, the, the first weekend of June, June the 3rd, to have our friends Bill and Pam Farrell. Bill and Pam Farrell are the uh, authors of the book, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. 
And now, so some of you hear that, you go, man, any event where we're going to eat food like that, I'm there. You'll be disappointed. Not a lot of that food that day, but you're going to hear some great stuff. And basically, the premise of the book is men operate with brains that are like compartmental, like waffles, and women's minds are a lot more enmeshed like spaghetti. And as soon as I say that, you go, I need to be there because <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about. And the fact that we're so different, just as men and women, the way we relate. So that event's going to be in the afternoon, Sunday, June the 3rd. Registration is live today on our website. Go and get registered. We'd love to have you come and be a part of that afternoon. You'll get to meet Bill and Pam. They're going to share with us. And they'll have some very highly practical, pragmatic ideas of what really is a God-honoring, healthy marriage. So just want to encourage you to get signed up and be a part of that. Another thing not related to our marriage series, but going on today for the second time, we're going to do a thing that we call uh, Start Here. And it's out on the plaza. There's just a real obvious easy up. If you are new to Trinity Church and you just haven't gotten a chance to meet myself or some of our pastors and you'd like to do that, that's what that space is for. So we'd love to see you come by after service. We'll be out there. Just love to get to meet you, hear a little bit about your story in any way that we can help you. We've got some sheets there that are some basic what we call next steps, and you can get some more information for ways you'd want to get involved. So love to meet you after the service today. Well, we're going to dive in and um, look at some things that I'm real excited to look at related to marriage. And I want to start with this idea that in order to understand how something works, you need a good manual. And in order to understand why something was built the way it was, you need to talk to the designer. The great news is, is that we have access to both of those things. God's given us so much in his word about the functions and the way that marriage was designed. And we get to talk to the designer to say, God, help us live out what you have built. And that's our goal throughout this series, just to lay a great foundation for what God intended marriage to be as we um, look together. Now, for some of you, you were with us in our first series uh, this calendar year in January. We went through the book of Daniel, the first six chapters anyway. And as we did, we kind of gave four axioms every week. I thought that would be helpful in this series, just four kind of big ideas to orient ourselves to every week. They're not in your notes today, but they probably will be in subsequent weeks, but they're on the screen. Here's the first one. We've chosen to look at this topic of marriage to provide clarity as to what God's word says about the marriage union that he designed. So I want you to understand this. Though the topic of marriage has become politicized in our country, it's not my intent to be controversial, but simply to be biblical. So over the next five weeks as you join us, we're just going to look at God's design as given to us in the word of God for living out this uh, incredible relationship called marriage. And though we're in a very political season of this issue, for sure, not just in our country, but even in our state, I want to assure you that my hope is, is just by providing truth, the word of God, that you can measure that against the other things that you're hearing and continue to ask the question, God, I just simply want to know and I want to live according to your design. Secondly, the series is aimed primarily at those who are not yet married, so you'd begin to orient your decisions around God's design for marriage now. So a lot of times, students, we have you sitting down here. I know you're in this area and even all throughout the room. Let me just say this, is that if you are here today and you're hearing us talk about marriage and you're checking out, like not married, don't care, let me just be very specific. My heartbeat as we did this series is really for you 
who have not yet entered into those waters, but that you would begin to think in a biblical context. You'd be able to think about God's design long before you might even be in a relationship. Or if you're in a relationship now, asking yourself the questions, is this according to what God wants, or am I kind of going by what the culture says, or what I've just heard in other places, or just simply what I want? And I would say to you, that's why we're doing this. So please don't begin to check out. Take these things to heart now. Let them be the foundation upon why you make decisions that you make related to these relationships. And, and choose now to say, God, I want your design. You may be here today and you would say, you know what? I, I'm not only am I not married, but I'm not interested in getting remarried or I'm not going to really see myself getting married at all. No problem. Here's why this series is important to you. It's important to you because you have people in your relational world, maybe children, maybe grandchildren, maybe good friends that are married. And I would want to encourage you to be an incredible source of encouragement, an incredible source of truth and grace in those marriages that you can encourage people, hey, I, I can't know experientially what you're going through, but I want you to know God's word says this because there is a lot of bad counsel that happens even in our church world, not just Trinity, but in general, where we give each other the words we think they want to hear rather than the truth. And so I would say to you, especially if that's where you fit, be a person who hears this and is able to share honestly and compassionately the truth of what God says on this a relationship called marriage. Thirdly, because God's design for marriage is not lived out fully by any of us, there are no perfect marriages in the room. Let's get over that. Some of you are here today and you're wondering, well, it'd be so much easier if I was married to her. So much easier if I was married to him. Let's just get over that idea. It's not the truth. But as a result, let's do this. There will be constant reminders of areas that all of us need to grow and mature. And I'm going to insert the phrase, not just your spouse. This could be a wonderful series for the elbow nudge. You know, are you paying attention? Are you listening to what he just said? Okay. I'd encourage you look in the mirror, not out the window. Okay. This has a lot for each one of us. Fourthly, and this is important, no matter what the state of your marriage, some of you are doing well, you're in a great season. Others of you are barely hanging on. No matter what the state of your marriage, seek the truth of God with the spirit of God in the grace of God to live out the gift of God that he's given you in one another. I just want to encourage you as we dive in. That's our hope of doing this series is to encourage people in their marriages so today we begin with the essence. We begin with the foundation of oneness. Oneness is the idea. I remember putting together some materials when I was a family pastor on this subject of marriage. And it was kind of challenged. Come up with a synonym. What's a synonym? What's another word you use? And if you stop and think about that, that could take a while. There are so many dynamics and, and facets to marriage. You could spend a lot of time, but eventually a word came to me, and it's this word today, oneness. Oneness, I think, is a great word, a one-for-one one of what God's intent was for this relationship that he designed. So when you think of this one-flesh relationship between a husband and a wife, when we look at God's design for oneness for marriage and that spouses would live out this design, we need to understand what oneness is and what it looks like. So that's our goal today. 
Throughout the series as well, like we did in our family series a year ago, I'm going to be uh, mentioning some book recommendations. And the first one I would just so wholeheartedly endorse, it's called Staying Close. You'll notice the picture is different from mine because mine's super old, okay? I've had this for a while. But it's by Dennis and Barbara Rainey, and they are the founders of Family Life Ministries. Probably some of my favorite resources have come from this group. And they're the ones who are kind of the the founders of it. And this book, Staying Close, about probably chapters like four through eight, are all about the idea of oneness. They kind of walk that out. What does oneness mean? What does it look like? And so especially on this topic, I'm going to quote it later today. But this is a book that I would recommend. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed, by the way, too. Five weeks means five book recommendations. I'm not going to want anyone to read five books on marriage in this series. But identify one that would especially be helpful to you as you are processing the season you are in. Here's our now what idea for today as we take this truth this week. When you choose to live in oneness in your marriage, you enjoy the essence of God's design. And I really think that word is, is chosen with um, intent when you choose. There are conscious choices we make to live in oneness, and that's what I want to draw you to, encourage you to today. Number one in your notes, in the beginning, God designed marriage to be a relationship of oneness. That was God's initial intent. God designed marriage to be a relationship of oneness. When you look at a host of de- definitions for marriage, we'll be all over the map. Just literally looking up Webster's Dictionary, this is the first definition that pops up. It's a legally, this is marriage, a legally recognized relationship established by a civil or religious ceremony between two people who intend to live together as sexual and domestic partners. Oh, by the way, in a few definitions below, a combination of a king and queen of the same suit in card games such as Pinochle. I want you to know, if you didn't know how to play Pinochle, now you do. Okay. Now, in that first definition, let's look at a couple things that could be missing. It said any two people. Any two people. Or did God specifically bring a man and a woman into a marriage union? And is it an agreement where participants merely are intend to live together? That's kind of the gist of it. We intend to cohabitate. Or is there more to that marriage, more than a sexual and domestic partnership? And I would say that, yes, God designed marriage to be so much more than that. As we look today, rather than all the different ideas that are out there in our culture screaming what marriage is, I just want to encourage us as we do this series, let's go back to the design. Let's talk to the designer and see what he has to say about this relationship. So we're going to see the very first wedding ceremony. Your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 2, looking at verse 18. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And listen to this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
So this is in the garden. This is pre-fall. Sin is not entered into the world. God gives this incredible union of marriage. Now within it, we'll see a couple of things. God basically does this. The context is that God is showing, he's depicting to Adam, there is no one suitable for you. He has all of creation in front of him and he sees again and again, not a fit, not someone that I'm going to be able to do life with. Now you'll notice twice the word helper showed up. And ladies, I want to help you with this. We will spend a lot of time on that word next week because I know it comes across diminutive. Oh, Adam needed a little buddy. He needed an assistant, a helper, okay? We're going to unpack that word, and you're going to see much more of the value and the power of what that word means. We lose something in our English translation. We'll go back and look at both in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek to find out more. But for now, that's what was going on. It's in this context. And what I want you to see, though, we know that we believe that Moses was writing these words hundreds of years later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as he did, he creates an axiom. He sets something up about what all future marriages were to be about, what was to hold them together. Because Adam and Eve had no parents that they were going to leave to come together. He says this. This is the idea of oneness. It's in your notes. Three essential ingredients. The first, forsaking forsaking one's former family, second, fastening, fastening oneself to his or her spouse, and thirdly, forging, forging a new identity together. These three components, fastening, I'm sorry, forsaking, fastening, and forging, that will be the the elements that will say come together to to, to determine this oneness type of relationship, these basic components. Now, the first one, forsaking one's former family, for some of us, especially maybe families we're marrying into, if your idea is that means we never have to see his parents again, this is awesome. I love this. It's it's not depicting that. Really what it's saying is this uh, forsaking means forsaking a dependence upon. The the nature of the relationship has changed. That's why when you've been to weddings and if it wasn't your kids getting married, you've kind of watched from the front and you see a lot of tears and you're trying to figure out, is this not happy? Like I'm confused. What's going on right now? And so many times, especially from parents of the groom, parents of the bride, there is the sense of we understand fundamentally the relationship has changed. Now, on the one hand, I was just sharing with a person yesterday, we, we love the fact that it's not as though our kids are going to be dependent on us for their whole lives. That's not the nature of things. God is wanting them to move out into their world. But because that's all it's been up until now, it's hard. And so they're realizing that this relationship is changing. So the heart of the Hebrew word here is dependence. No longer finding my identity, my satisfaction, my resources, or my future in my family of origin, but now in this new relationship with my new spouse. Just yesterday, my son and I were talking and texting, and he uh, got on his own auto insurance plan. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God. And I'm going, bro, welcome to marriage. Welcome to independence. This is great news, okay? So it speaks so much to severing those ties of dependence, not relationship, but dependence, that once bound a child to a parent, but now have been rightly released so that the new marriage relationship can be strengthened in an undivided manner. What God is instructing is not that a married couple sever all ties to their original families, but that they do indeed now live in a new manner, a new way that allows them to grow together 
to depend upon God and each other. Second component was that of fastening, fastening themselves to each other, holding fast to this person that I'm committing myself to. The domain of this Hebrew word is threefold. The first is that of a pursuit. We pursue each other. The second is that of holding on, holding on tightly. And the third is that of a stickiness, something that won't let go. Those are all the ideas, the semantic range of what this idea means is to fasten to one another, to become incredibly close. And the third component of oneness is that of forging, forging a new identity together. God says that this new union will be one flesh, one new identity formed from two who were separate prior to their marriage. A completely new thing is being created. Becoming, watch this, becoming one flesh is not merely the addition of one person to another, but the dissolution of two unique persons into one new union that is organic and alive. Let me explain it this way. I wasn't great in high school in uh, chemistry, but I do remember one time our teacher kind of talking about these differences between a compound and a mixture. A compound is when you take two elements and you, or two or more, but in this case, two elements, and when you combine them together, there is a chemical reaction in which these elements are no longer themselves, but molecularly they have changed and formed a brand new thing. A mixture, though, is very different. It's where you add things that can be very easily removed from one another. One is a chemical compound. The other is a bag of M&Ms. It's quite easy to pull out all the yellows. That's a mixture. Marriage is not a mixture. It's not adding something together. It's a disillusion of who we were becoming something new. That's God's design. That's what oneness is. Look what Jesus says on the topic. Matthew chapter 19. You can either turn there or look at the screen. Interestingly enough, a lot of things that these religious leaders called Pharisees tried to catch, they tried to trip Jesus up. And it's interesting that one of those was the topic of marriage. Some Pharisees, chapter 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's an incredibly loaded question. The Pharisees didn't even believe that. But they're trying to get Jesus, they're trying to trap him into a, this corner. And this is all he says. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. Look at what he goes on to say. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That last phrase, I don't know if this happened in your wedding. I know I've seen it plenty of times in movies and such. But there's a line sometimes in a wedding where the officiant, a pastor, whoever says something like, if any of you know any reason for why this couple ought not get married, can I first say that's not necessary to have in your wedding, okay? And it's a really bad idea, I think, actually. If nobody spoke up before today, this is not going to go well, okay? So, but, but when you've heard that statement made, then usually you've heard that officiant say something like this, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He's usually connecting that dot to that statement. I don't think Jesus meant that at all. It wasn't about that, two, uh, that people outside of the marriage union would dissolve the marriage. He's talking about the couple. What God has joined together. Let no man separate. Jesus reinforces the oneness, the stickiness of marriage. He talks about this one flesh of being enmeshed, 
entangled together in such a way as to become something new, something altogether different than who they were originally. So I've, I've been, uh, this has been wedding season for Todd. Uh, my son, you know, we talked about that. He and Sky got married a couple months ago, and I did a wedding last weekend, our own Caleb and Jennifer from our church here, and then I did a wedding last night, uh, friends up in the high desert. And what's been interesting in this whole thing, it's been really cool for me knowing we we're going to do a marriage series to be thinking about this in the wedding season and thinking of what these couples are going through. And it's just true in every time that the weddings that we've done recently haven't had any big faux pas, any big kind of fail. But it's true when you're up there, your brain is mush, right? If you're a bride or a groom on that day, you're just all over the place trying to focus. He's giving you words like, um, you know, uh, and now it will be, and now what? What'd you say? You know, you can't even remember three words to repeat. So your brain's like that. And it was like that for Joanna and I. So we've married 25 years, and I'll never forget at our wedding ceremony, we had gone through, done a rehearsal like everyone else, and, and like what was probably relatively common in that day is we did a unity candle. A lot of new ideas around. I love it when couples join sand together. Uh, a week ago at um, Jennifer and Caleb's wedding, we did a lasso that had this cool symbolic picture. Yesterday, it was really cool. We did a wedding, and they did a foot washing right in the middle of this, or towards the end of the ceremony. Very powerful example of selflessness. I'm going to pledge to be a servant to you. So anyways, with all those things, that was what was kind of cool in our day was these unity candles. And very ceremoniously, people come up and they light the candles, but the middle one, they leave unlit. And there in the ceremony, there's a time when the bride and the groom, we practice this. We walk back. We each take our own candle. We come to the middle. We light the new candle. And then I'm supposed to receive them, blow them out, and put them back. Well, we get to the wedding, and everything's going great and, and wonderful. And we get to this part, and the pastor kind of lets everyone know what we're going to do. And we walk back, and we each take our candle, and we go ahead and light the, the middle candle. Everything goes great. Usually people are afraid that that candle's not going to light. Everyone's on the edge of their chair. I bet it's going to fail. And then they're going to get really upset, and she's going to cry. You know, the whole, everything went fine. Light the candle. And, and then Joanna, in this very lovely expression, hands me her candle. And when she does, I go, now what? <laughs> Completely blanked. I had no idea what I was supposed to do with these. Even as she was handing them to me, I just look at my face like, what? <laughs> so I take the candles and I'm like, well, that one's lit. Okay, I think I'm supposed to blow these out. So I blow them out, but then I don't know what to do with them, so I just set them on a table. And then we walk back. <laughs> now, what you saw and... and most people wouldn't have thought much of it, but what was supposed to be was one new lit candle and these extinguished candles set up. But what people saw was just one lit candle. And I think in some ways that ended up being more powerful than what we would have practiced. That that's God's intent. I'm not saying that you lose your complete identity when you're married, but I am saying that our natural tendency will to be remaining individuals. God says, I've created marriage to be very different from who you were when you were alone. I've created it to be something where there is this entanglement of people. That's a new compound, not a mixture. And so we see this from the book of Genesis. We see this in the first book of the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. The issue of oneness, I want to finish with this in this first point. The issue of oneness I want you to catch this today is not even primarily or only, is a better way to say it, only for you. 
We'll talk in a minute about some of the benefits that come from living in oneness. But one of the ideas is God said he intended marriage to be a picture of Jesus and his church. We'll talk more about that in subsequent weeks. But this is supposed to model what Jesus does and how he lives towards his church and how his church responds to him, to his leadership. So the question is, is that as people are interacting with you as a couple, they should be seeing a symbol, a picture of Jesus in his church in your notes. This is what happens. If you're married, living in oneness helps you fulfill your mission of living a rooted and reaching life. Partly in the sense of you recognize how much you have to hold on to Jesus to live out your role towards a person who at times doesn't deserve it. But similarly, how you live as a couple, you have multiple people you share in common, and even those you don't, that are watching your marriage. No one's marriage, we said it earlier, no one's marriage is perfect, but we are to demonstrate Jesus and his church. And as people interact with us, they see that and they say, that's different. That's more than what I see in most marriages. There's something about the way they love and sacrifice for each other that I'm drawn to. That's a picture of Christ. Number two in your notes, you experience great benefits of living out God's design of oneness in your marriage. And, and you know, this, this should come like as no surprise. Because what we're saying is when you live according to the design, it functions, not only functions, quote, efficiently, it functions of benefit. Things work well. They're meant to have this sense of benefit or else they wouldn't even exist. We not only bring pleasure to God when we live his design, his way, but we also experience these benefits towards one another. Here's a couple of them. A in your notes, you experience intimacy with another that is unrivaled by any other human relationship. You experience intimacy with another that is unrivaled by any other relationship. Solomon said this. We know that the book of Proverbs is written from a father to a son. And he writes this, Proverbs 18, 22, He who finds a wife finds what is good. The translation I memorized growing up, and by the way, I memorized this, right? I'm, I'm thinking about marriage someday. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I'd walk up to people when we're newly married. Here's my good thing. And watch this. And receives favor from the Lord. We recognize that we're blessed to have each other. We recognize this is a gift. There's a gratitude that goes with this, and we're thankful that God has seen fit to align our paths to bring us together. And to keep us walking in parallel lines together. So this marriage relationship is to be understood as this benevolent gift from a creator who knew that we were built for, we were designed for intimacy and a capacity for true oneness with a spouse. And I would say today that as close as a relationship could be with a friend, as close as a relationship could even be parent to child, nothing in scripture even comes close to when God describes what marriage is, of this oneness, this one flesh. The book of Song of Songs, also written, we believe, by Solomon, who would later write to his son, it writes about this couple who is just so engrossed with one another, so excited about this new love between this young groom and his bride. And though many may blush at the intimate exchanges between the two, God gives us a depiction of how gratifying and pleasurable romance in a marriage should be. At the book's conclusion, towards the end, here's some of the words from Song of Songs 8. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. 
Its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. There's just this intense bond with one another. Letter B in your notes. You experience security. You experience security in the vowed love of another. I told you about these weddings that we've been doing. And what's been really neat, this isn't always the case, but in these, these last three weddings, my sons and these two in the last two Saturdays, what they've all had in common is they've all written their vows to one another. And I will say by far, in all three of the services, that's always been the highlight. Because here's what's happening. Because they realize that these vows are more than flowery talk. They realize that they're saying with their own voice, in their own words, this is who I'm committing to be to you. And I have loved, in all three of these services, I have loved to hear from their own mouths, from their own hearts, this is what I understand my role to be and who I'm covenanting myself to be to you. Any of us who've been married for any length of time would know those were a lot easier to say at a wedding. A lot harder to live out. But absolutely worth it. And in those words, remember what was being shared. And I love this. The vows were, were so, just so authentic and so full of who they were. But one thing that every one of these couples said, every groom and every bride, they all said the same thing. I will love you even when you're not awesome. Because today is awesome. Wedding ceremony, this is great. But it's the rest of the marriage afterwards that is really the challenge. And so they all said in their own ways, I pledge to marry or to, to live in marriage in oneness with you even when you're challenging to me. Even when it's hard. Like Walter and Gail said, even when we disagree, that's not somehow like grounds for not being married anymore. We work through it. And it was a beautiful exchange in all of these. People saying, I don't commit to love you just in richer, just in health, but for poorer. And when your health is failing, there's a real bond and a security that comes to a, a spouse when they hear those words and see those lived out. Letter C in your notes, you experience not instant but ultimate agreement in important marriage matters. You experience not instant but ultimate agreement in important marriage matters. Here's what I mean by that. Some of us in the room today have sung in choirs in our lifetime. And, and when you sing in a choir, you'll know that every once in a while, it's very rare, but every once in a while, the choir will sing in unison, meaning they're all singing the same note. And they do it to really drive home a point. And I will say for a choir member, those are the easiest parts to sing. Everyone's all singing the same thing. And you also know they're very rare. However, what we as an audience love when a choir is singing, we don't really enjoy so much the unison, we enjoy the harmonies. And we enjoy hearing the different notes and how they work together and they weave to form something very beautiful. And we know that though that takes a lot more work on the choir members, that's what's really beautiful to the ear. Look at this passage. Paul writes to the church, Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. It doesn't say live in unison. Live in harmony. Live in harmony with one another. Finding agreement on issues with your spouse very rarely is those moments of unison. 
With just a little bit of conversation, we all agree we're all good. I was already thinking that. I finished your sentence. Awesome. Those are great, and they're rare. But what begins to happen over time is initially what looks like a lot of headbutting. Hey, I have this view. I have this view. I think, like Gail said, I think I'm right. I'm sure I am. You know, all this going on. What we begin to realize over time is this, and I wish in my marriage I would have learned this long before. Two heads think better than one. Two heads think better than one. And what I mean by that is as you're having an argument, a conversation about an issue, and you see it from different vantage points, if you will look to just get in those shoes for a second and say, how are they seeing this? I've even learned in my marriage to say, I trust Joanna's wisdom and discernment, especially relationally so much that if I have a different view than she does, my initial reaction is, what am I missing? Because I've learned to trust the way she sees the world. I've learned that her perspective is so different than mine and so often right. And so what we do is what we work on is we begin to say, I'm not going to hide this from my spouse because I don't want to hear what he or she would have to say. I say, I already know this is probably going to be a discussion point where we don't initially agree, but I'm going to bring it up because I want his or her perspective. And at the end of the day, what I want is wisdom. What I want is the best answer moving forward, not my way. That's maturity. That's maturity in a marriage, and it's seeing the value of having another person to grow with. Letter D in your notes, you experience the completion of your gaps. You experience the completion of your gaps by one another. And I want to preface this by saying I appreciate, as Walter and Gail were sharing, it was either this service or last, we're not looking to our spouse to somehow be our completion. That's always found in Christ. But there are some significant parts of us that are wanting and that we see how God is complementing this relationship and who he's brought me. Now, I told you a little bit ago, I'm going to quote staying close from Dennis Rainey, and in doing so, use my best Philadelphia accent along the way. I'll show you. Um, He says this, I'm quoting him. He says, perhaps you saw the original Rocky film. We're talking Rocky 1, not Rocky 12. Okay, Rocky 1. Um, he says, do you remember the love relationship which, that Rocky had with Adrian? Yo, Adrian! You know that one. <laughs> she was a little wallflower who worked at the pet shop. She was the sister of Paulie. Remember Paulie? An insensitive goon who worked at the meat house and wanted to become a collector of debts for a loan shark. She so had a high aspirational goals, okay? Paulie couldn't understand why Rocky was attracted to Adrian. I don't see it, he said. What's the attraction? Do you remember Rocky's answer? I doubt that the script writers had any idea what they were saying, but they were perfectly, but they perfectly exemplified the principle for a suitable helper from Genesis 2. Rocky said, I don't know, fills gaps, I guess. Polly, what's gaps? She's got gaps, I got gaps. Together we fill gaps. (laughs) In a simple but profound way, Rocky hit upon a great truth. He realized that without him, Adrian had empty places in her life, and without her, he had empty places in his. But when the two of them got together, they filled those blank spots in one another. And that's exactly what God did when he fashioned a helpmate suitable for Adam. She filled his empty places, and he filled hers. Benefits of living in this oneness, we complement each other well. Finally today, number three in your notes, there are obstacles that threaten oneness with your spouse. 
So we've kind of defined a little bit. This is God's kind of definition of marriage, why oneness is, is such a good word for it. Secondly, we said these are the benefits from living in it, but we'd be fools to say there are not challenges. There are not obstacles to this idea of living in oneness. If you were here today and, and you as a married couple were both sinless and you had no outside pressures trying to tear you apart, oneness would be easy. But neither of those things are true. One sinner married to another sinner and a lot of outside forces trying to pull you apart. So let's see what some of those are. What are some of those challenges? A, today, one of the challenges to oneness is being unequally yoked. Being unequally yoked. Let me explain. By the way, the word, it's not the yoke like the yolk of an egg. This is a yoke like a harness between two oxen. Everyone in the first century knew what this was. And actually, until about 150 years ago, everyone in America knew what this was because we we're all farmers. But the idea of this wooden harness, you'd put two oxen in it. And the idea of unequally yoked would mean you'd have a mature oxen and an immature one. And the reason they're yoked together is so they'd pull a straight line. So the minute that the, the one would overpower the other, they'd be going diagonally. A good farmer wanted his oxen going straight, so he would equally yoke them. He would take two oxen that were the same size, the same strength, and he'd hitch them to one another. That's the imagery. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What, of what, or what fellowship can have... I'm sorry, let's, let's have Todd read. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. These are powerful words. And the, the um, application of being unequally yoked goes far beyond marriage, but absolutely includes marriage. And here's the essence of what Paul is saying. Think of this relationship of a person who is a Jesus follower and one who is not. How can you forge a new identity together if you don't have the main thing in common? First of all, this is a strong warning to people who are not even dating yet. I keep looking in your guys' direction. This is a strong warning to people who either, either are dating or are definitely not married yet, that you would take this to heart. I want to be very crystal clear, and this is, I have no ax to grind. I'm just telling you from what I see in the Word of God, missionary dating is not a thing. It's not a thing that honors God. And, and let me be real clear. There's some of you in this room, by the way, that's your testimony. I wasn't a believer. She was. We began to date ultimately over time. And I want to say praise God for how that worked out in your life. But I want you to hear this. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And then I was a family pastor for 10 years after that. And from every high school student who would tell me, but Todd, you don't understand. I had 10 more on the other side of wives who said, Todd, and usually it was wives. Wives who said, Todd, this is the hardest thing to love Jesus and to try to love my spouse who doesn't. And I want you to see in this passage in 2 Corinthians 6, do you catch the end? Jesus is saying, or Paul's saying, he's saying the reason why, it's not just a law, don't do it. He says the why, why you don't need to do this, why you don't need to become unequally yoked is that you can trust me. You can trust me for the people I will bring into your life. These last three weddings I've done have been three couples who have all said yes to that. 
In case we were wondering and thinking this is a passe thing, it really doesn't matter anymore. Three young couples who said, more than anything, it matters that my spouse is going to love Jesus. And we're going to make that from the very beginning. Now, you're here today and you say, Todd, that's awesome. That's not my story. I'm married to someone who doesn't love Jesus today. Now what do I do? And I want to be crystal clear with you. And by the way, there's a host of reasons why that could happen. Number one, you did missionary dating. Or number two, you came to Christ later on. Neither of you were Christians when you got married. You came to Christ. You've got to realize who Paul's writing to. This is the first century. Nobody in Corinth is a Christian. Paul came and brought the good news of Jesus. They're all hearing this for the first time. <coughs> Excuse me. And so in this process, there were multiple people in marriages that were coming to Christ while their spouse wasn't. Watch this. Paul had something to say to them in his previous letter, 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband will be sanctified, will be in this position of having this holy influence through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her unbelieving husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if a believer leaves, let him do so. The believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Watch this. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each of you should retain the place in life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Paul's big picture idea is that people were coming to Christ and they were just bailing on all their relationships. And remember, they lived in an incredibly pagan culture in the city of Corinth. So they were just saying, these people all around me are a mess. I'm out of here. Paul says, no. Whatever station you're in, stay there and be a person of influence. So hear this clearly today. If you're currently married to someone who doesn't love Jesus, stay put. And see how God would want to use you as a husband or a wife of influence in that relationship. These are tough things, I understand, but it's really important to understand what does God say. Secondly, here's another barrier to this oneness. It's living selfishly, demanding that the other meet my need first. Huge barrier to living in oneness is living for me. Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. By being what? Like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others. Consider your spouse better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is what we're talking about, entering into marriage. Welcome to selflessness. I had someone just yesterday at the wedding tell me that. They said, I never realized how selfish I was till I, had, till I was uh, married. And then they said, and then after that, I realized I was even more selfish when I had kids. And we do. It's that trajectory of learning, God, this is, I have lived life kind of suiting myself. Marriage and parenting really takes that out of me. It really drives me to be someone who puts others first. But if I'm, and here's the interesting thing. In theory, I think everyone gets that. But in the real stuff of marriage, when we have gone for seasons and our spouse has not been living out their part, 
Our spouse has been selfish. It is the easiest thing to retreat back and say, God, once they get their act together, I'll start being selfless again. Can I tell you, there was nowhere in that passage that gave us that out. We're simply called to be selfless servants of one another. Now watch this, by the way. I told you yesterday at this wedding, this powerful unity idea of foot washing. It was an incredibly cool moment to be able to say that this couple is saying to one another, I'm going to choose, not just today in this ceremony, but I'm going to choose to continue to serve you even when you don't deserve it. That's what every couple should be saying. That's what this passage is telling us. Finally today, letter C, becoming content, another barrier, another hindrance, becoming content with isolation and cohabitation. This is a huge obstacle to oneness. It goes right back to the beginning where we started today, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. See, I want to be honest in this series and deal with realities, not just wonderful pie-in-the-sky theory. And here's what it comes down to. No one today who's in a good season of marriage would ever think that marriage is acceptable or marriage is a good thing when we simply are under the same roof, when we're just simply roommates. Nobody ever aims at that. But over time, and through enough challenges and enough selfishness and enough just heartache, we begin to settle. We begin to pull back. We begin to be people who say, you know what? It's just too hard. It's too hard to try to live in that oneness. It's too hard to try to maintain this unity. I'm just going to settle. I'm not going anywhere. But I'm going to settle to be your roommate rather than to be your husband, rather than to be your wife. And I want to encourage you. I told you in this series, it's going to be some tough stuff. We're going to be looking in the mirror. We're going to see some things that are very troubling, even in this season in our marriages. But I want to encourage you. See not only the truth of God, but see the grace of God and what he can do and how he can heal and who he can help us to become. I loved in my conversation with Walter and Gail on Friday, they talk about, I'll give you a little teaser, they talked about the idea of seeing transformation with their own eyes in their spouses. And they they see that at an incremental less level today because of their growth and maturity and walk with the Lord. But initially they were just seeing this transformation. God is changing him. God is changing her. And I'm so excited to have a front row seat to get to keep watching and and benefit from it. I want to encourage you, for those of you who've settled for cohabitation, settled in isolation in your marriage, take a brave step. Take one step forward. Here's a way you can even do that. Each week in our series, we're going to have these sheets in the back and at the exits of the Welcome Center called Taking Home, today's topic, Taking Home Oneness. And all it's meant to be is start a conversation with you as a spouse, as spouses in your marriage. And take one of those, just one per couple, and it's meant to just go, let's ask a few questions, let's rate, let's ask about real life things that we need to deal with, and let's ask for help. Let's appeal to God today. Take one of those this week, and over the course of this series, let this actually provide some really good conversations you need to have. And secondly, this, today at the end of our service, as always, we're going to have people available to pray with you. But we're going to do something special through this series is if you, you might even say today, you know, Todd, in our marriage, things are actually, we're in a good season. I'd say praise God. But if you want to come down and you would like someone or a couple just to pray over you, just to pray a prayer of blessing over your marriage, there'll be people here today for that specific reason. Just say, hey, we'd just like you to pray over us. And they'll be happy to do that. Here's our, our now what idea. Live in this this week. 
that when you choose to live in oneness in your marriage, you enjoy the essence of God's design. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who, when we look in the mirror, we see a lot of flaws for a lot of reasons, and one of those relates to how we've treated our spouse. And God, for some of us, we've just kind of gone underground. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal. It's hurtful. It's, I get it. But God, what I pray for is in this series, as we keep bubbling to the top your truth, I pray that we'd be people who aren't just hearers of the word, but doers also. And would, for some of us, our first step is just forgiveness. Our first step is, rather than cocooning, saying, I, I've lived in a place where I have not been living out my covenant, my vow to you. I want to begin to do that today. God, let there be healing, restoration. Let there be hope. You may be here today, and as we talk about looking to God for strength, you would just say, Todd, I, I, I really don't do that because I've never really responded to God in the first place. He's kind of more of a theory to me, but if you're interested, if you're here today and you would say, Todd, I want to know him, though. I want to know this creator of the universe. The Bible says you can you can by responding to his invitation of forgiveness and love. A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believing that Jesus is the only savior available. C, choosing. Choosing today to say, Jesus, I trust what you did at the cross in my place. It's something that religion and morality could never afford. I choose to put my faith in you and I want to walk your steps, living out your example. Father, help us in this series. Help us be a people who take to heart what you say and would our marriages reflect you and your church more and more. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.